Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's the Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host. And in today's podcast, where we're talking all about the rise, one of the first warlords, really, of the late Roman Republic, the rise of Marius. Now, this is quite an old podcast episode. Actually, it was recorded over a year ago with Dr. Federico Santangelo from the University of Newcastle. I'm glad we are finally releasing it. Federico was a wonderful guest. I do hope you enjoy. And without further ado, to talk all about the rise of Marius, here's Federico. Federico? It is great to have you on the show. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Now, Marius and Sulla, this is an amazing topic. And can we say that these are the first two prominent warlords of the late Roman Republic? Oh, yes. That's one of the few certain things we can say about them, yes. And the notion of warlords, you know, it's a controversial one because it's one drawn from contemporary history. And as ever, modern concepts do work only up to a point when it comes to ancient history, but it is a productive notion because it really brings us to the interplay between the military dimension and the political one. Fantastic. We're starting with a certainty in an ancient history podcast. This is great. It's all downhill from now. (laughs) Indeed. I'm presuming our sources on both of these figures, they are quite extensive. By the standards of ancient history, yes. But there's an important caveat. They are mostly late. They're mostly, with one or two exceptions, from the imperial period, from the late 1st, early 2nd centuries AD. And whilst those authors, who, by the way, are Greek, actually, Plutarch and Appian, are clearly well-informed authors who read very widely, they do produce, inevitably, derivative accounts. Highly intelligent, highly informed, but nonetheless derivative. And therefore, we have to try and think about the sort of material they might have had at their disposal and about the various concerns and preoccupations that informed it. Of course. Well, if we go on to Marius first of all, because I believe he's a bit older than Sulla, he emerges on the scene before Sulla. Indeed. What do we know about Marius's background, first of all? We know that he came from a smallish town southeast of Rome called Arpinum, modern Arpinum which had been a community of Roman citizens since 188 BC. Marius is born in 158, 57 BC. So he's born a Roman citizen. Now, he comes from a small town, and there's actually quite a bit of 
disagreement among the surviving ancient sources as to whether he was really a modernizing term country squire, the member of an affluent local family, or whether he was actually really of a comprehensively undistinguished background. All the sources do agree that he was from Arpino and that at some point in his youth he moved to Rome. Now, the sort of connections he managed to establish in Rome relatively shortly after his arrival as a young man, connections with you know, prominent senatorial families, especially the Caecili Martelli, suggest that he probably was really the member of a distinguished family from Arpino. But nonetheless, he's clearly an outsider and that tension, I suppose, between his rustic rural origins and really the central role that he came to play in Roman politics is a very real one and endures down to the end of his long and well busy life. Busy indeed. And do these connections in the capital, do they help him when he goes into his military career? Well, they are probably. We know precious little actually about the details of Marius's early life, but actually those connections are probably the outcome of some extraordinary military records that Marius managed to build as a young man. And we're talking about his mid-20s, really, when he is certainly active at Numantia, in the campaign at Numantia in the Iberian Peninsula, under the leadership of probably the greatest military talent of his generation, Scipio Emilianos, the conqueror of Carthage. And, well, there's a lovely anecdote in Plutarch and various other bits of the ancient tradition that do point to a close personal relationship between Marius and Scipio Emilianus. And indeed, the impression is that Emilianus did spot Marius's outstanding military talent. The connections with the Caecili Metelli, according to some sources, actually weren't forged by Marius himself, but might have already been forged by people in his family from previous generations. And they certainly become, anyway, apparent after his return from his stint in Spain. And it is certainly thanks to the support of the Hercule Metelli that uh, he manages to make his way onto the so-called cursus honorum, right? The pathway of public offices that young ambitious Romans were supposed, were expected, or were required indeed at that point, to follow, starting with a junior magistracy and moving upwards all the way to the consulship, if you were lucky and determined and ruthless enough to make it there. That's a remarkable story about Marius in Spain, as you say, under the leadership of one of the greatest Romans of his generation. And you're saying he may have been singled out for praise by this famous general. Oh, yes. There's the little story I was briefly referring to earlier in Plutarch, whether it's historical or not, frankly, is immaterial. But it's a very powerful story, right? It's a story of a dinner or after dinner conversation that Scipio Emilianus has with a number of men that are clearly part of his staff, of his inner circle. And at some point, the, well, he's not an old man, but he's certainly by that point already an elder statesman and a very distinguished commander. He's asked by one of those psychophants that people in that position tend to have <laughs> around their dinner table, whether you know, a military talent comparable to his will at any point be found or be seen in the Republic. And uh, the story goes that Scipio Emilianus turns towards Marius, who's sitting next to him, and taps on his shoulder and says, well, maybe you've got one of those here. Now, it's likely to have been made up uh, exposed, as they say, but it is a powerful story, and it takes us really, I suppose, to this other fundamental layer of tension, really, about Marius's life and career. He is someone who, certainly by the standards of people like Scipio Emilianus and his peers, came from an undistinguished background. He does not belong to a family that has produced senators. 
but he is regarded as a very impressive individual and as someone who can credibly uphold and champion the traditional values and indeed the set of practices that come with those values of the Roman nobility. What really seems to be the common ground between Marius and Scipio Emilianus is their commitment to military discipline and to the principle that when you force tight discipline on your camp among your men, but you do that first and foremost by sharing into their toys and labor, and you really lead by example. And of course, the whole notion of example is central to Roman culture, not just in the Republican period. No, of course. And you mentioned, though, of course, uh, he goes back to Rome after this, but we do remember Marius, first of all, for his military career. How long before he goes from Rome to, is it North Africa, the next military area that he's active in? Well, yes, there's a possibility they might have had other military assignments before then, but certainly the first campaign that he gets to play a central role in is the Jugothine War. And that actually is over 20 years after the Numantia campaign. We're talking about 109, 108 BC, when he first goes to Africa, serving on the staff of a serving consul, uh, Quintus Caecilius Martellus, who will later be known as Martellus Numidicus, in recognition of his distinguished achievements in the campaign against King Jugurtha. That's a very remarkable war, the war against Jugurtha. It's actually a regional conflict. It's about Rome getting reluctantly involved in a political and military crisis involving some small, relatively small, potentates in North Africa. It is about a very active, very capable regional ruler, the king of Numidia, Jugurtha, who is in principle an ally or a friend, as the Romans would have put it, of the Roman people because he's inherited that bond of alliance and friendship from his ancestors but who's clearly very determined to play his own cards in his own way, to pursue his own hegemonic agenda in North Africa, and who's prepared to do that both by violating the prerogatives of his co-rulers, indeed of his adoptive brothers, and also more generally disregarding any instructions that might be coming from Rome in that respect. And after a rather complex process of rather botched negotiations with Jugurtha and rather unsuccessful small-scale military operations in North Africa, Rome becomes heavily involved on that front. And Quintus Caecilius Metellus leads an army in the province, choosing Marius, who by that point is a former praetor, is someone who can perhaps look forward to the prospect of a candidacy to the consulship, but he's not quite there yet. Well, he picks Marius anyway as his legatus, as one of his legati. Now, the legatus, legatus can mean all sorts of things in Latin, can mean ambassador, for example, but what we're looking at here is, in modern terms, a chief of staff, a senior aide, who's put in charge, really, of the cavalry, or at least a sizable chunk of the cavalry in the development of the campaign. And again, the fact that we have a Caecilius Metellus picking this chap from Arpinum for that sort of role points to a close personal relationship and one of personal confidence, as well as clearly to the by this point, I suppose, rather familiar fact that Marius is widely recognised as a top-class military talent. And how long does Marius serve in this role as Metellus's legate? Well, that's for about 18 months. I suppose the details of the chronology are somewhat unclear, but we're looking basically at over a year of intense campaigning in North Africa as a very capable, very efficient and very loyal cavalry commander fully committed to the principle of a chain of command that has Metellus at its top. 
problems start to arise when Marius uh, puts his mind to the prospect of standing for the consulship. And that happens at some point in 108 BC. Now, here you actually have conflicting accounts between our two key ancient sources that are Sallust, great Roman historian, and Plutarch, Greek biographer of Marius. There are actually conflicting accounts on when Marius came up with the plan and on what sort of circumstances led him to take that decision. But anyway, at some point, Marius does make the decision to put himself forward. And of course, in order to put himself forward, he has to sail back to Italy and put his candidacy in person. And he therefore has to seek Metellus' permission. And Metellus' reaction to that is, at first, and also not just at first, (laughs) really, not exactly encouraging. So Metellus actually doesn't really have Marius's back when he wants to sail back to Rome to possibly take the consulship. No, he does not. And of course, there's a powerful story that we're told about Metellus' reaction. Even an author like Sallust, a great Roman historian to whom we owe a detailed account of this important but certainly not crucial war that was the war against Jugurtha. Sallust has lots of positive things to say about Metellus, about his integrity, about his intellect, and indeed about his record in the Jugurthine campaign. But when Metellus is presented with the real possibility of Marius standing for the consulship and possibly getting it, he's absolutely dismissive of that possibility. He he gives Marius a sarcastic reply. That's for the future, you know, maybe maybe you'll get there someday. But the reaction is one, uh, as Salos puts it, of almost stereotypical, embarrassingly stereotypical haughtiness, uh, nobilia, aristocratic, patrician haughtiness. And that, of course, has a the effect of a powerful catalyst for someone like Marius, who is by that point determined to put himself forward, and who, and in this respect, I think all the sources do agree, once he makes it back to Rome, stands on a platform that puts his own personal, and first and foremost, military credentials right to the forefront. And he really does make a great deal of his status of new man, or homo novus a man that comes from a family that has never produced a senator, let alone a consul or a great magistrate, but who nonetheless, and this is a crucial point of the discourse that Marius developed during his campaign, who nonetheless knows everything that one needs to know about traditional Roman values, and indeed about the values that were upheld by the distinguished and high-achieving ancestors of people like Metellus. And of course, the point that most notably, perhaps, a speech containing Sallust's Bellum Jugurtinum, which is attributed to Marius, makes, is that all these noblemen of the time pride themselves on their distinguished backgrounds, on the achievements of their ancestors, but have actually failed to live up to those standards of behavior and moral conduct, and would actually be an embarrassment for their ancestors if their ancestors came back to life, whereas someone like Marius as precisely the sort of moral compass and indeed technical, practical skill that is needed to uphold those traditional values and indeed more tangibly to bring the campaign to successful completion. And well, we actually know precious little about the dynamics of that election campaign, but what is quite clear is that Marius is a very effective campaigner and that he capitalizes on a climate that by that point seems rather comprehensively hostile to the families of the traditional nobility. 
and no doubt the rather egregious record of mismanagement and indeed corruption that the senatorial nobility had accrued over the recent years, especially in its dealings with Jugurtha, that played a very important part in creating that hostile climate. At any rate, Marius is elected for the consulship of 107 BC, and he can then look forward to taking charge of the war himself on his own terms. I find that amazing. You say he was motivated by Metellus's putting him down, as it were, and as you said, this campaign, which we don't know too much about, but it's as if he uses his his new man background, the fact that he isn't, as it were, hindered by these great ancestors and the population perhaps wanting change, as it were, he uses this to his advantage. Yes, he does. And as ever in uh, certainly Roman Republican history, but I think the point can be applied more widely, you have a complex interplay between change, between newness, as you could put it in Latin, the novitas, right? There's a certain ideology that comes with the claims that a new man like Marius makes and tradition. And the weight of the past, which never really goes away, and which, in fact, even someone like Marius feels the urge to claim for himself. And here, really, you can look backwards and you can look forward, because you can look backwards toward the Gracchi, great champions of the agrarian reform, who actually claim that agrarian reform is needed if traditional Roman virtues, especially the virtues of the Roman farmer, the link between looking after the land and serving in the army, is to be restored. That's clearly, it's a crucial set of traditional values that they claim to be wanting to restore through their agrarian reform. But if you look forward, of course, well, we'll get to Sala perhaps in a bit. And there as well, you have a very powerful, or depending how you look at it, toxic mix of tradition and innovation. But then, of course, in many ways, the most fascinating example of this never fully resolved and yet very productive tension is uh, Octavian or indeed Augustus. But of course, what might have actually led Marius to put his candidacy forward at that particular point must remain a matter for debate, because we hardly ever get to hear from the man himself. You know, we have that long speech in Sallust, where I'm sure Sallust does bring back into the fold a number of things that Marius was known to have said, but to a large extent, Sallust is developing his own literary and ideological agenda, and rightly so by the standards of ancient history. There is, of course, a tradition which Salas does voice that actually places the light bulb moment, the moment when Marius really decides to put himself forward, as Marius is performing a sacrifice in Utica in North Africa. And there is this Etruscan diviner, a Haruspex, that's assisting him in the performance of that sacrifice, as is customarily the case by that point. He's basically a priest, if you wish, sort of a religious specialist that's actually serving on the staff of the commander. And at some point, as both Marius and the Haruspex are looking at the entrails of the sacrificed animal, the Haruspex sees that those entrails foretell a story of unparalleled success for Marius and really are a call to action. <laughs> you know, go off and put yourself forward, young man. Well, by the point, he's actually no longer a young man. He's early 50s or thereabouts. But nonetheless, put yourself forward, you clearly have success written in the future for you. Go off and get it. Now, that in itself is actually a story that on the one hand points to a scenario of uh, divine favour, but at the same time is actually not so quietly subversive, because what you have here really is a prophecy that is produced in the context of an official, of a public ritual, if you wish, but is not a prophecy about the res publica, or indeed about the relationship between the community and the gods. 
it is about an individual being singled out for great things in the future. And that in itself is, I think, a further, a further symptom of this uh, complexity of Marius, and indeed of his time more generally, this clash between old and new themes that you see play all the time. In April 1982, armed forces from the United Kingdom and Argentina went to war over the Falkland Islands. This month, 40 years later, we are dedicating a special series of episodes to finding out what this conflict was all about and what it was like to fight on either side. The sea harriers were flying over when they attacked us. They trusted us and we felt we had let them know. I really don't know whom I would be now if I had not gone through that experience when I was 19 years old. You can't take a submarine prisoner, you, know, you have to find it and you have to destroy it. And if it goes wrong, it goes catastrophically wrong. To follow along, tune in every Friday to the Warfare Podcast from History Hit. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. After Marius is elected to the consulship this first time, he returns to North Africa? He returns from North Africa, but first he does something crucial, which was actually part of his job description, which he does in a way that, if you believe Sallust, and indeed a number of modern scholars, was highly innovative and arguably revolutionary. What does he do? But he does, of course, enlist an army. There was a crucial part of the task of any military commander in Rome. You don't really have a permanent army in the Republican period, people that sign up for life or even for a long time. You have people that might sign up on many occasions during their lifetime, but who do sign up to serve under a commander for a specific amount of time for a specific campaign. And it will be the magistrate's job to recruit his army. Marius does that very quickly, very efficiently. He can rely by that point on uh, his own reputation again as an outstanding commander. He has made a big deal of the fact that he will get the media done. He will, 
win that war and he will generate substantial amounts of booty or material rewards for those that will serve in his army. And he doesn't really struggle to find willing men in Rome and indeed across Italy. What is remarkable and what Sallust does single out as a very important aspect of his, of his work there is that he opened up the army to men that were willing to serve regardless of their economic background, or to put it in more technical terms, regardless of their property qualifications. So even the propertyless are allowed to serve in Marius's army. That is singled out by Salos as a new development, and indeed a number of modern interpreters of this period from, I suppose, from the 1500s at least. Machiavelli already makes that point in his discourses on Livy. Well, a number of modern students of this period have said, well, actually, this is a really a turning point because we get the poor, indeed, even the paupers, possibly, into the army. They get to serve and they serve largely because, A, they see the prospect of very real material rewards at the end of the campaign, B, because they've got a personal connection, a personal relationship with the command. And before you know it, that army, much more diverse, with a large component of poor soldiers, will no longer be the army of the Respublica, it will be the army of whoever is in charge of it. And so the so-called Marian reform of the army has for a long time been regarded as a turning point in the history of the Republic. Now, over the last few decades, really, a number of scholars have considerably qualified this picture. First of all, it's become apparent that for the best part of the second century BC, you have plenty of instances in which property qualifications hardly matter at all in the way in which the army is recruited. And there's clear evidence that people with minimal property qualifications were let into the army. But quite apart from that, the radical extent of Marius's recruitment practices has been significantly downplayed on a number of factual and also rather technical grounds that several modern studies have effectively brought out. And to the extent that now that the fairly recent book that came out a couple of years ago by a French scholar, Francois Cadieux, that's called the L'Armée Imaginaire, the Imaginary Army. And it's actually a rather successful debunking of uh, the idea that there is such thing as a Marian reform, and that Marius really introduced a wholesale rethink of how recruitment practices were supposed to work. I rather happily subscribe to that picture. I do think that what Marius does is far less innovative than uh, many scholars have argued. And actually, I think that a close reading of Sallust's uh, text also suggests that. But there are, nonetheless, uh, a couple of important themes to pick up on here. It is quite clear that Marius's own personal standing plays a very important role in getting that army ready to set off to the media in the space of a few weeks, maybe months, possibly even weeks. And it is quite clear that there is a very important role of volunteers in Marius's army. So that the connection between Marius and his soldiers is a very real factor in this story and will remain a very important factor throughout Marius's career. So Marius has got this army, this new army, as it were, that is lured and attracted by the promises of plunder, but also Marius's reputation is loyal to him. And with this army, he sets sail to North Africa again. Yes, he does. And what he then begins is an offensive against Jugurtha, who is by that point weary, but uh, by no means crucially undermined by the substantial progress that Metellus has made, and who is prepared to fight on, not least because he can rely upon a far superior knowledge of the terrain, as you would expect, being the local ruler. Rather early on in the campaign, 
Marius's leadership is, say, complemented by the leadership in a junior but very significant capacity of a senior aide of his, a quaestor, a junior magistrate, 20 years or so younger than him, who's come over to North Africa from Italy, and who, like Marius a couple of years before, is put in charge of the cavalry. He's actually also taken part in recruiting. There's a chap called Lucius Cornelius Sulla. He's a patrician. He comes from a patrician family. He's a member of the Gens Cornelia, one of the most distinguished ones, of course, in Rome. But he actually comes from a branch of the Gens Cornelia that really has gone out of favor with the establishment and also with the voters, so it seems, for several generations. Again, there's quite a complex tradition on Sulla's youth and uh, some sources even depict him as a rather impecunious aristocrat who built his initial capital that enabled him to fund his early election campaigns in not entirely reputable fashion. But whatever the case might be, Sal is a patrician, but certainly a patrician that cannot claim recent ancestors of significant senatorial standing. And who gets involved, again, in a very senior role, very significant role, with Marius's campaign. According to Sallust, who produces a memorable portrait of Sulla. When Sulla comes to Africa, he is largely unacquainted with military matters. He doesn't have any military experience. Very clever, very accomplished, very well read, also in Greek literature, unlike his boss, unlike Marius, always made a point of not bothering to learn any Greek or having hardly any Greek. Sulla is a much more polished fellow in that respect, but we are told that he has no military experience. Now, Some modern scholars have found that very implausible, and I also find it rather incredible that this quaestor man in his early 30s would have been entrusted with such an important brief with hardly any military experience. But what is really striking here, and what we actually know absolutely nothing about, is the previous history of the two men. Why did Marius decide to entrust Sulla with that crucial role? What did he see in him, and what sort of prior connection did they have? We don't know. But what is quite clear is that Sala, very early on, starts playing a very significant role in the military operations. And he then also plays a significant diplomatic role in bringing closer to the Roman cause, the Roman camp, an ally of Jugurtha, a dynast of a neighboring territory, Mauritania, a chap called Bocchus, who's a key ally of Jugurtha and who, at some point, engages in talks with the Romans through Sala. The development of the campaign is rather complex, rather messy. As Salas at least presents it, the outcome, the denouement of the campaign is really down to Salas' ability to persuade Bocchus, Jugurtha's key ally, to connive with the Romans in organizing an ambush in which Jugurtha is to be captured. And after quite a lot of wrangling about and in a turmoil, Bocchus does decide to betray Jugurtha for expediency's sake, out of his own self-interest. And indeed, an ambush is organized in which uh, Jugurtha is captured by Sulla and his men, not by Marius. Sulla duly surrenders, delivers, hands over Jugurtha to Marius, and it will be for Marius to display the prisoner in the triumphal procession in Rome sometime later. But the capture of Jugurtha is Sulla's own doing. So it sounds as if, first of all, Sulla and Marius, they work well together. 
as said, with the campaign, but is this capture, the fact that Sulla captures Jugurtha and not Marius, is that significant in causing a rift between them? With hindsight, yes, especially when, at some point, a few years later, Bocchus, who's still in charge of Mauritania, he got to keep his uh, territory, funds the dedication of a statue in Rome depicting the surrender of Jugurtha to Sulla. And that donation, the tribute to Sulla by a foreign ruler, by a foreign king, is regarded by Marius and those close to him as a slight, and indeed as a gesture that fundamentally undermined Marius's claim to having secured the victory against Jugurtha. But that rift is not immediate. It intervenes only at some point in the 90s. It intervenes at a time when Marius has uh, held a number of consulships in the immediate aftermath of the Jugurthine War. And actually, in the years immediately following that campaign, the operation between Marius and Sulla continues. It goes on. And it goes on, notably, in the face of a major military threat, much more significant one, actually, than the one presented by Jugurtha, coming from the north. Right? You have these Germanic and Celtic populations, the Cimbrians and the Teutons, that are trying to make their way into southern Gaul and indeed into northern Italy, and uh, seem to be about to revive an existential threat to Rome, comparable to the legendary, mythical, but perhaps also very real threat that the Gauls had presented in the early 4th century BC. And that it really is the task that Mario must face in the immediate aftermath of the Jugurthine War. He's actually elected to his second consulship as he is busy wrapping up the, the Jugurthine conflict. And that's actually the start of a series of consulships for Marius until the end of the 2nd century BC, or what we call the 2nd century BC, because it's not an ancient constant, as you know. He gets to hold six consulships in this period, until 100 BC, first in order to face the threat presented by the Cambrians and the Teutons in southern Gaul and in northern Italy, and then also to oversee the aftermath of that major military effort. For several years, Marius is not simply the most uh, powerful, the most influential individual in Rome. He is someone who achieves a record of distinction that pretty much no one else had achieved, certainly in the last four or five generations. We really have to go back to the, to the days of the Hannibalic War to regard someone that had a comparably significant record of achievement. That really has to do with the emergency that he gets to face, that he's put in charge of, in the immediate aftermath of the Numidian campaign. And that's the emergency of the campaigns against the Cimbrians and the Teutons. Of course. And let's focus on that now. Of course, one of the last things towards him reaching the peak of his power is this threat from the north. So at the time that Marius has finished the Jugurthine War with Salia, the situation in the north of the Mediterranean, the Roman in North Italy, in southern France, it's not looking good for the Romans, is it? Oh, not at all. There have been significant, especially in southern Gaul, there have been significant setbacks for Rome and then major defeat. Marius manages to revive the Roman war effort, again, by restoring, at least so we are told by the sources, high standards of discipline, by working very hard on the logistics of the campaign, especially in southern Gaul, and also by getting a couple of battles, crucially right, I mean, especially the Battle of Vercellae in northern Italy. But again, if you look at the accounts of that battle, it's in many ways the battle that brings that campaign to successful completion from Rome's point of view. 
you will actually see that there are conflicting accounts on the extent of Marius's contribution to the strategy that led to a Roman victory. What is so crucial, really, to the appreciation of Marius, as far as the ancient tradition is concerned, is really the extent to which he's to be credited with exceptional military achievements. Right? If you look at the Jugurthine War, you see that, yes, clearly his intervention is decisive. Salah's deal with Bocchus is perhaps the clincher, is perhaps what actually enables Rome to win the war. And something comparable applies to his achievements in the campaign against the Cimbrians and the Teutons, to what extent he is to be credited with the correct strategy in the Battle of Erkelai, for example. Why is this the case? Why is there such a strong focus on his military achievement? Because Marius's own spectacular rise would have been unthinkable without those two military crises, and especially without the northern emergency. Marius gets to hold that extraordinary set of consulships, right? But actually he spends most of the time as a consul away from Rome. And he's never really fully in control of the political scene in Rome. He never plays a hegemonic, a dominant role in Roman politics, let alone in the debates within the Senate. And actually, when it comes to managing the aftermath of the Cimbrian campaign, and for example, devising a program of land assignments for his veterans, Marius struggles. Marius begins to struggle when it comes to finding allies. And it's the transition from uh, what you do away from home, militia, and what you do domi, what you do at home, what you do in the city. So he owes his rise to some significant military victories, such as the one at Verculi in, is it 101 BC? Yeah. Amazing. So in that regard then, Marius has made this rise and this Cimbri threat, the fact that in Versailles, it sounds like they were in Italy itself, so definitely a really big threat, and he's able to extinguish it, as it were. How is he rewarded when he comes back to Rome as this military hero? Well, of course, he gets to celebrate the triumph. He is elected to the consulship for the year 100. There is a tradition related by Plutarch, whereby he was hailed as a third founder of Rome, the first being Romulus and the second one being Camillus. It's a tradition that a number of modern scholars have looked at with a degree of scepticism, but there is certainly, in some quarters, the sense that Marius really has saved Rome from a fatal threat. And it is, for example, a strand of thought that you find in Cicero, a generation or two later. Now, of course, Cicero is from Arpinum. He admires Marius in a number of respects, in spite of their many differences. But he certainly does single him out as a saviour of Rome, and then Cicero plays quite a lot on the fact that he himself, Cicero, had saved Rome in 63 BC from the threat of Gatilan. So he establishes that correlation between himself and Marius. Now, what no doubt a number of people will have praised Marius for is his ability to have eradicated the threat, the northern threat, and to have done so impressively in an impressively quick period of time. But the range of rewards that he receives, of course, is perhaps less striking than one would expect it to be. But we are, after all, let us not forget, in a context in which political distinction and you know, the distinction within the political establishment has been very tightly, very strictly policed for centuries. The idea that you, of course, you should be duly rewarded and recognized for your achievements, for your gloria, is ingrained in the system. But there are, to use a modern expression, a set of checks and balances, right? the check of restraints that are placed upon you. 
and upon the, the extent to which your distinction can be celebrated and rewarded. And in the normal scheme of things, it would have been uh, entirely reasonable for someone like Marius to really step back into the domain of distinguished statesmanship, you know, sort of elder statesman territory at the end of such a remarkable set of military achievements. Now, of course, here we've got a, a major complicating factor, which is Marius' army, or indeed Marius' armies. We should really think of Marius' armies in the plural. He's been recruiting armies for several years. He's been replenishing his armies with new men for several years. And a number of those individuals will be awaiting their rewards. And, uh, you know, part of those rewards would come from donations, from Marius, from the war booty. But clearly there's also appetite for land, at least in part of the crowd of his veterans. And really that becomes the fundamental issue. A set of land assignments for his veterans. That becomes a controversial issue and an issue on which Marius struggles to find allies within the senatorial establishment. And this is where his connection with two very capable political operators at the time, Saturninus and Glaucia, becomes crucial. And this is really the moment when you have on the one hand, Marius' agenda, and on the other hand, the agenda of these two tribunes, Saturninus and Glosha, who have their own set of social and economic reforms to push. There is a, that, at least towards the end of the second century BC, the sense of a convergence of interest between them. Until uh, the ways of Saturninus and Glosha, their methods, their willingness to resort to political violence, become a front of controversy, especially in the senatorial establishment. And eventually, Marius is compelled, really, to side with the Senate, when the clash between the majority of the Senate on one side and Saturninus and Glosha on the other becomes irresolvable. The Senate instructs the consuls to take action against Saturninus and Glosha, just as the consuls have been instructed to take action against Gaius Gracchus in 121 BC. And at that point, Marius decides to follow the authoritative advice of the Senate against those that until a few weeks before, arguably, had been close allies of his. The plan of an agrarian reform benefiting his veterans is, to a large extent, an abortive one. And Marius finds himself alienated from a significant chunk of his support base from about 99 BC onwards. And that marks, the Saturninus and Glosha incident, marks a very substantial, very significant break in Marius's own political trajectory, from which he comes back only about a decade later. So is this really the pinnacle of his career, would you argue? I'm not so sure about that. I think to some extent, if one regards just the brutal realities of power, I think one could regard his comeback in 87 BC as another pinnacle in his career. In terms of the methods that he followed, of course, in 87, the brutal massacres that he carried out, he and his associates, there's plenty to object to, as it were. But if you just look at in Machiavellian terms, at the power that he achieved, he certainly does manage to make a very successful comeback. If you look actually at Marius's political career, it's not a very happy one. That's a fundamental problem. He's not really associated with any substantial political reform, except for an electoral reform, a ballot reform early on during his tribunate in uh, 119. But during his consulship, and then later on towards the end of his life, he's really associated with great military achievements, not so much with substantial political ones. It's very interesting. And I must ask, maybe just to wrap it up, regarding that, his military capability, but maybe less so his political ability, as this is going on, particularly at the turn of the first century BC, around 100 BC, do you think, or do we know, 
where the Sulla is, as it were, taking notes on the sideline. He is looking at Marius and he is learning from Marius. I think we've got to safely assume that, much as the story that uh, Sulla himself got to write about his own political and military education. He wrote an extensive autobiography that is lost, but which has clearly influenced the tradition that does survive. Now, that story is a story in which, no doubt, Sulla underplayed the extent and the quality of his connection with Marius. But certainly, if we look at the ways in which Sulla managed to mobilize the loyalty of his men in 88 BC, for example, but also later on, by appealing, on the one hand, to rather fundamental values, rather fundamental principles, but also by getting them to rally around his own person, whilst at the same time (laughs) making them, if there was any need for that, aware of the material rewards that sticking with him would entail for them. Well, this is all very Marian. And yes, I think that to a large extent must have something to do with Salah's early dealings with Marius. But then quite more broadly, both men are very smart readers of their own time and of the sort of political method and political rhetoric that you were supposed to use if you wanted to go places. It's remarkable. As you say, Marius, a man who doesn't have the backing, as it were, hasn't got the family background of all these prestigious figures. Sulla, on the other hand, a man whose family has been basically out of the limelight for a long period of time. But as you say, these become, in the next 20 or so years, prominent figures in deciding the course of the late Roman Republic. Yes, they do. And of course, Sulla does actually manage to enact a number of reforms during his dictatorship that do fundamentally change the way the Senate operates, the way the courts operate, the way provincial administration functions. He's also someone that manages to get the balance between uh, the role of the army, of his army, and the role of politics, of political debate, of political conversation, right, insofar as the pursuing of his own agenda was concerned. He does manage to terrify people rather mightily with a number of uh, absolutely callous acts, but he also manages to bring forward a set of very bold reforms. I don't think we should think of Salah as a conservative or indeed as a reactionary. He's a rather bold and visionary reformer who is certainly committed to curtailing the role of the popular assemblies as a major focus of power and authority in the Respublica. But he's a very bold reformer. We should not lose sight of that. He's also someone that, because of his background, I suppose, does have an ability to interact with the great families of the nobility that arguably Marius did not have to the same extent. Very interesting. And we definitely need to have a look at Sala in more detail in a future podcast. Federico, thank you for coming on the show. And you have written a book all about Marius? I did write a book on Marius, yes. Imaginatively entitled. Marius, published by Bloomsbury in the Ancients in Action series in 2015. Thank you very much, Federico. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. My pleasure. Well, there you go. There was Dr. Federico Santangelo explaining all about the rise of Marius in the late 2nd and early 1st centuries BC. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Now, if you want more Ancients content in the meantime, where you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter via a link in the description below. If you'd also be kind enough to leave us a rating on either Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever you get to your podcast from, I would greatly appreciate it. And that's enough from me. I will see you in the next episode.
A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.